today's episode, we will dive deep into the creation story in Genesis and have music by Briand Adelphe Melanson. of an infinite darkness but the breath of the creator fluttered against the face of the void whispering let there be light and light was and it was good hi everyone how you doing i am so happy that you were able to find sheep among wolves i'm your host sam and if this is your first time listening you're probably wondering what exactly does this podcast deal with This show is an eclectic array of topics and discussions centered around biblical text, ancient text, religion, and topics the culture at large find interesting but have a religious undertone to it. We go beyond the typical Sunday morning sermon or Bible study and really dive deep into the narrative or into the topics. Simply put, as Joe Friday used to say, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. So our shows will get into difficult sections of the Bible or even passages that don't appear to be difficult or controversial, and we'll explore and go deeper into it. We'll also explore topics such as the apocalypse, whether or not there are Bible codes in the Bible, angels, demons, spirits, paranormal, Lucifer, Satan, devil, and we might even get into the extraterrestrial. All of these topics are popular in our culture at large today. Today, we are going to explore the creation story in Genesis. On the surface, that may not appear like it is a difficult or controversial topic. However, did you realize there are actually two stories in Genesis? Honestly, I've been studying scripture all my life, and it never really dawned on me that I should be looking at Genesis 1 and 2 in a deeper way. You see, there are actually two distinct stories here. And if you're like me, you gained your understanding from creation from your first grade Sunday school teacher. Now, don't get me wrong here. Sunday school teachers are wonderful. I had a great first grade Sunday school teacher. Her name was Mrs. Chance. And one of her lessons obviously touched on creation. This was a particular memorable lesson because we did a skit. Well, that day I got to be the sun. So when it came to me, I raised my big yellow golden sun and I proclaimed in my little first grade voice, let there be light. A star was born that day. No pun intended. But truth be told, my understanding of creation never really got past what I learned in my first grade Sunday school class. I mean, really. God created the six days, he rested on the seventh, voila, end of story, case closed. So whether I wanted to admit it or not, as I grew into an adult and began to study scripture from an adult mind, I tended to gloss over the creation story. It wasn't until later where I began to look at the text and what was going on in the text and realized there are two distinct stories here. We have a story in chapter one. And we have a story in chapter two. If you do a quick Google search, more times than not, you'll get an answer that these two particular stories are really just one story. And that the story in chapter two 
is really just a substory or an expansion on what is going on at the end of the first story. In fact, there are a lot of scholars and smart people out there that will give you a copious amount of research and detail and go line by line through this passage and give you the literary techniques that are going on and ultimately come to a conclusion that this is one story in two parts. And for most people, that might be a good explanation, but I'm not most people. I really began to look at these passages and ask myself, is there something else going on within the stories themselves? Are they trying to convey something greater? Are there nuggets of truth that I can glean from the text itself? But I like to explore all the arguments. So my journey into this text took me into a lot of different areas. I looked at language. I looked at symbolism. I looked at the structure of what is going on within these passages. I looked at differences that are happening in the text itself. And of course, I did look at theology. I hope that this particular show will at least pique your curiosity and maybe take a second look at the creation story. So let's roll up our sleeves, sharpen our pencil, grab some coffee, and dive into Genesis 1 and 2. Let's do a 40,000 foot overview of what's going on here in chapters 1 and 2. So as we look into Genesis 1 and 2, we find that there are two distinct stories going on. In chapter 1, it starts out, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the ending of the first story happens in chapter 2, verse 3, where it says, God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. And then the authors of Genesis now move into the second story in chapter 2, verse 4. And we know that because, again, the author uses the word created. This time, however, it says these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Later on, we'll get into the language of those two beginnings. But right now, I just want us to focus on the structure going on. We see here there are two stories. We have to acknowledge that. I need to mention the fact that the Genesis accounts of creation were most likely oral stories that were passed down from generation to generation to generation before it was transcribed and written in its form that we see today. So this more than likely is the oldest of any part of the Bible. As we go through the structure that is happening here in the first story in chapter 1 and into chapter 2, verse 3, there is a logical structure to the story. And we see that, first of all, by the designation that there is a 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and finally 7. Obviously, that draws our attention to the fact that there is a sequence going on in creation. So you have in the first day, the creation of day, night, light, darkness. In the second day, we have the creation of the sky or the firmament. Day three, we have the creation of the seas and dry land. And then we move into more of detail or specifics that are starting to be created. Day four is the introduction of the star in the sky 
as in the sun, which gives us the light, and then the moon, which is the star of the night sky. Obviously, for those of you out there that are scientists and astronomers, yes, I do know that the moon is not a star. However, we have to look at this from the ancient standpoint. It is a bold, bright object in the sky. Then we move on to day five, where we have the creation of the winged objects or fowls or birds. And then we have the sea creatures that live in the sea. Followed by day six, when we have God making the living creatures that creep and crawl on the land, the cattle, and of course, creates male and female. And then on the seventh day, God rested. What is obvious as we go back through the structure is that there is a pattern of macro and micro, above and below. You have in the first three days, major objects being created. Or in the case of light versus dark, you have major differences within the cosmos happening. Day one, day two, day three. Then in day four, five, and six, we have the micro where we have objects that are specific to these macro happenings being created. So what we have here is a link between days one, two, and three and days four, five, and six. So day one correlates with day four, day two correlates with day five, day three correlates with day six. You have a left and a right, a macro versus a micro. So very logical. The second story really doesn't want to focus on any sequential pattern that is going on, but more of the fact of, you know what, all of this stuff was created. Let's just move to the nuts and bolts of it. What we have is the author in the second story is emphasizing man as opposed to emphasizing the sequence or the structure or the logic behind creation. So in this particular case, man is the focus, whereas opposed to the first story, which was creation is the focus and man just happens to be part of creation. So as we look at the second story and the emphasis on man, the first thing we see is that God put man into a garden, which is called Eden. And in this garden, there are rivers that flow out, which are the four rivers, which we'll get into later on and what that really means. But right now, let's just look at the structure. So there's a garden of Eden that man has been placed into to help manage it. We also see God created two major trees in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Obviously, we will touch on that later on. I'm just bringing up the major differences right now between the two stories. As we continue through the story, and we see that we have these four rivers that flow out of Eden, God tells Adam to start naming all of the animals and the creatures. And so he does that. But in naming all of the animals, God has decided that there is not a helper sufficient or to the level that God feels Adam needs. And so the story then takes a twist. Whereas in the first story, God created man, male and female. The second story focuses on this idea that woman was an afterthought. Let's just put it bluntly. 
And again, later on, we'll get into the symbolism that is going on here in chapter two. And as we finish up the second story, there's this emphasis on Adam and woman. And we get to this part in the passage. Verse 24 says, therefore, shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall be one flesh. So again, the second story doesn't end with God resting. It ends with Adam and woman being together as one in the garden. So as we look at the two stories and put them into perspective, at the very least, what is going on is there is an emphasis that is different in the two stories. In the first story, the emphasis is on God, the creation, and then God. That's the flow of the story. God, creation, and then God rested. So God is the focus of the first story. And if we look at the second story, the emphasis is on God and his creation man. Now that we have the structure of the two stories down, let's go ahead and look at the language that is going on in these passages. section, I want to concentrate on the Hebrew language and see if the author is trying to convey a meaning by using certain words and how the author uses that word or chooses to use a different word in the passage that when looked at more deeply does have a different meaning. And readers today might not understand that because they are reading it in written form as opposed to listening to it in oral form. And so if they were listening to the passage, they could hear the distinction, which then alters the way this passage comes across to them in a more deeply and moving way. I want to concentrate on a few of these Hebrew words and see what the author is trying to convey to us. The first word I want to focus on is this idea of God. When we read it in the English language, it typically just translates into God. We don't see a distinction between the two. We just look at that and say they're talking about God. However, these two stories actually have two different words for God. Now, you may ask yourself, does that even matter? I'm not here to give you that answer. I'm just pointing out what's going on in the text. In the first story, the author chooses to use the word Elohim. Elohim in the Hebrew means divine ones or super beings. It's often used in the plural form when used in the Hebrew scripture. So in this particular case, Elohim typically refers to a council or Beings that are not earthly. Now, Elohim also is used in the singular form for just a generic form of God. In the second story, we see a shift in the language. And you can see that very distinctly when we look at chapter 2, verse 3, where it says, So God blessed the seventh day. That's the end of the first story. And God, in that case, is Elohim. In verse 4, 
we now see a shift to Lord God made the heavens and earth. And the Hebrew language there is Yahweh Elohim. And why is that important? This introduces to us a tribal God, a specific God, a named God, not a generic God. So Yahweh Elohim. And we know that the author of Genesis is conveying that message to us that this is the supreme God or the supreme being of the Elohim or the divine ones. What I want to look at is the Hebrew meaning of the word Havilah and how that plays into what the author of the second story is trying to convey in using Yahweh Elohim. What it translates into English is land of circles, or in this particular case, a land of circles could be a nomadic lifestyle. Why is that important? Well, when we look at the meaning of the root word for curios or Lord or Sir, we see that it translates into spear. And in the nomadic lifestyle and in the tribes, What you had was a circle of elders that ruled over the tribe. And out of this circle of elders, there was one that would carry a spear. This particular leader was known as the spear carrier. So you would see this elder carry the spear into battle or carry the spear when they would walk around the village. So you knew who the leader of the tribe was from the one that actually held the spear. This idea of spear is where we get the word curio, which means spears, and then translated into kyrios, which means lord or sir. So the Greek word is kyrios, which has a derivative root in the word spear. A little side note of curiosity. The Hebrew word for cane can be linked back to this word for spear. Also, this brings up symbolism in the fact that Jesus was killed by a spear being thrusted into the side or the rib of Jesus when he hung on the cross. So all of this is happening within the passage. And we as 21st century eyes looking on this passage don't really understand what the author is doing here. So let me bring this all back together with this idea of spear, spear carriers, Lord, sir. What does it all mean? Well, it means that the author here is making emphasis on the fact that this particular God in this passage is Yahweh Elohim or the tribal God or the chief spear carrier of all the gods or elders. So that is the distinction in the stories between the two gods. In the first story, it's Elohim, which is divine one or divine ones or God in general. And in the second story, we have now a specific God or a chief God or a chief among the elders, Yahweh Elohim. Now let's look at the author's choice of the words created or made or formed. And yes, there is actually three different words used within these two stories to convey this understanding of making or creating. And I believe the author is trying to distinguish between the nuances that is going on within creation itself. Let's take a look at the first one right off at the beginning in Genesis 1-1, where it says, in the beginning, God created. 
in this particular form created is the word bara. Bara in Hebrew means to create out of nothing. There was nothing to begin with, and it was just thought into existence or created out of nothingness. The author is using this idea that there is chaos abound, and God spoke it into existence or created it out of nothing. This is important to note because the author only uses the word Bahra three times in the first story and none in the second story. The author chooses to use the word Bahra in this first verse, but he also uses it later on when he talks about creating sea monsters and the fowls and the living beast. And then later, this is the word used when it says God created man in his own image. So three times the author uses this word for creation or created, Bahra, which conveys this understanding that God created it out of nothingness. There was nothing there for God to use. God just spoke it into existence. Now, the second word we'll look at is this word of asha or make. This is different because this word really means to make something or create something out of something already in existence. So you're taking something and making it better or creating something new out of something that you already have. This word is used a number of times, far more than the Bahra that is used only three times. And we actually see this word used in both stories. When we read through the passage, we really should start to make a distinction between, okay, did God create this out of nothing or did God create this out of something already in existence? And good translations will distinguish between God created and God made. Now, you may be thinking that really doesn't matter. It means the same thing. Well, if it did, then why did the author choose to use two different words or something that quote unquote means the same thing? I really believe that the author is trying to convey a slight nuance or difference here. Now, the author has also used a third word that we don't see at all in the first story, but we do see it in the second story. And this is the Hebrew word yatsar, which means a pressing of clay together to form an object such as a figurine. So it conveys to us a potter and potter's wheel. God is literally forming something. And we first see that in verse 7 of chapter 2, where it says, Lord God formed Adam out of the soil of the earth. Now that is different. We have to note that. That is different than what we see in the first story in verse 27 of chapter 1, where it says God created created Bahra out of nothing. And now here we see in the second story in verse seven of chapter two, God formed Yatsar. We have to make note that the author chooses to use a different word or form of word here in this passage, which can mean that they are trying to convey a different meaning or understanding or a theological interpretation that is different than what is happening in the first story. 
So now let's dig a little bit deeper into this verse in chapter two and talk about this understanding of man and what is going on in the language that is happening here because there are two different uses of man that is happening from the first story and the second story. Let's take a look at the first story and see what the author is using for man. In verse 27, we see that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. In this passage, the Hebrew author chooses to use the word zakah for male and nakaba for female. That's important to note that distinction because as we move into the second story, those words don't show up. In fact, the author chooses to use the word Adam or Adam for man, and then later uses the word Isha for woman, which also translates as wife or from Adam. This is important to note because when we look back at what we talked about earlier about this idea of creation or creating out of nothing, Bahra, what did I say were the three things that God created out of nothing? The heavens and the earth, the sea creatures, the fowl, the living beast, and man. So when I think of man being created, it's from the mind of God or from the breath of God. In the second story, there is a slight shift into this understanding which was already formed in Adam coming from the ground. Do you see that slight distinction there in the text? In the first story, man came from the mind or the breath of God out of nothingness. And in the second story, man comes from the ground or something that was already made or in existence. Does that change how you understand God or view the creation stories? Maybe not. But at the very least, we have to look at the nuances going on in these two stories and what that really means to our understanding of God and of man. When we read in the English translations, it's hard for us to understand this without really digging into the actual written word and looking at it from a different perspective. Part of this is probably lost in translation. For these stories, as I mentioned earlier, were oral and traditions. So they would have been spoken in these tribes, maybe in the evening time amongst the fire. So the audience probably would have caught on to this and would have heard with their ears what they were trying to convey in the stories. Now that it is in written form, what we have to do if we really want to understand these passages is we have to do some research. It is actually a great time to be able to do this because there's wonderful resources on the internet that you can look up. You can actually see the Hebrew, actually look at how this Hebrew word is formed, how it's used, where it's used, and then put that back into the passage. And hopefully you'll understand the passage in a better way. So that's just a little bit of the nuances that are happening within the Hebrew language in these passages. And I hope that awakens in you a urge to want to go deeper and look at each verse line by line and see if there's anything else going on in the passage that you can bring out and hopefully deepen your faith, deepen your understanding of what's going on with God and how God interacts with man. In our next segment, we will continue to look at what is happening within our passages 
but not concentrate on the Hebrew, but just concentrate on what's going on between the two passages and are there differences. We'll have a little break here and then I'll be back and we'll discuss this some more. Welcome, everyone. I am truly grateful you are listening to Sheep Among Wolves. I'm your host, Sam. Before we get started, if you can help me out by hitting the like, subscribe, and notify buttons, you'll not only have access to the latest, greatest shows, but you'll also help me move the show up the logarithm list so that new listeners can find this information. But you know what really helps me? When you share it directly with your friends. I really do appreciate it, because as you know, I don't have a marketing budget, so I rely on you, the listener, to help me get this information out to the wider audience. Thank you. And remember, in the calm, deep waters of the mind, the wolf exists. Today's artist is Brian Adelphe Melanson, better known to his fans as Bamtone. You've probably heard his music and commercials and in the hit TV shows, The Flash and Shameless. Brianne grew up in southwest Nova Scotia, Canada, and you can definitely tell the influence of the melodic Celtic tones of Cape Britain within his songs. He's best known for being a songwriter, but he has toured with the French-Acadian band Grand Derangement, and he's currently with the children's musical group Little Buckaroos. You can find his songs on Eon Sounds. Here's Brianne Adelphe Melanson with What I Am. Second in my hourglass I'm not afraid to lose I'm not scared to win What counts is I try And I let the adventure begin Stone. I'm not afraid 
our attention on the differences in the slight and in some cases major nuances happening between these two passages. I believe that when we take these passages as just one story, we miss a lot of what's going on. The first thing I want to point out is the introduction. Obviously, in the first story, we have a sequential logical format. And at the end of each period where God creates, God says it is good and day one, day two, and so forth and so on. I'm not here to argue whether or not that's a literal day or a thousand years or generation or whatever it is. We definitely see that there is a literal day that they say. When we move into the second story and we see this in chapter two, verse four. It starts out, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. So right away, there is a difference between the first story and the second story. The second story has, these are the generations. They're not days, they're generations. That is a definite distinction between the second story and the first story. First story is a day, second story is generations. So we're not concentrating on a logical sequential pattern, but instead we're just generalizing these are the generations made, which does also bring up another fact that in Genesis 1, as we learned earlier, we have Bahra created 
what happens after that is that the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, makes the heavens and the earth, and it implies from something already in existence that's different. So that's the first thing I really want to point out to us. Now, moving down the storyline, the next thing we see that is different between the two stories is the fact of in story two, God has created a Eden, whereas that is not even brought up in story one at all. So let's look at that a little bit closer. Move down to verse eight in chapter two. It says, And the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, planted a garden eastward in Eden. So right there, we see two different things going on in this second story. First of all, planted a garden. That was not even mentioned in the first story. And the second part is eastward in Eden. So let's look at that a little bit closer. As we look at eastward in Eden, the first thing we need to focus on is the word Eden. Eden in the Hebrew means luxury or delight. Now, we also see in this passage, the author chose to use eastward. Now, I believe that is not something that is just thrown in there. So what does it mean eastward? Well, first of all, I believe the author is trying to draw our attention to the east. Well, what happens in the east? The sun rises in the east in the morning. So it's a new beginning. Really, if we look at that, what is the first thing that is happening in the first story, which is day or light? So what we have here is now the correlation between the first day in first story and now here in the second story, this is the first day in the second story. So the garden eastward in Eden. And then what happens in this story? This is where God or God, Yahweh Elohim, puts man into this garden. Now, notice he uses garden as opposed to using earth. And when we look at the word garden, it implies something that is created out of the earth. So it actually comes from the earth as opposed to in story one where God says he created the earth and then vegetation comes from the soil, but it's the earth. So there is a slight nuance here between the first story and the second story with this idea of a garden versus earth. It's a smaller set, whereas in the first story, it's a larger earth, cosmos, big. Eastward also has other connotations in the understanding of the ancient world. I'd be remiss not to bring up at this point this understanding of cardinal points, you know, east, west, north, south, and tying them to objects in the sky. In the ancient world, they believed that the upper world and the lower world were basically just mirrors of each other. So when we look at cardinal points, east would represent Jupiter. Jupiter amongst the planets was the major planet. It was the supreme planet. If we go through the rest of them, west would be correlated to Venus, south would be correlated to Mars, and then the north would be correlated to Mercury. So we at least have to acknowledge that the author may be trying to convey a deeper meaning by utilizing eastward and maybe tying it to the planets 
so that the reader understands that this is the supreme, the beginning, and so forth and so on. As we move down through the passage here in the second story, we see that God has put two major trees in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What we have to understand about these trees is that these trees come from the ground. So they come from the earth or the soil. These aren't created as in Bafra. So right away, the author of Genesis is giving the reader this knowledge that this is coming from the earth. This is coming from the ground. This isn't from the heavens down. This is from the earth up. As we move into verse 10 in the second story, it says, and a river flowed out of Eden. Now let's focus on this word river. It seems harmless. Okay, it's a river. However, in symbolism, river obviously is associated with water. It's also associated with something new, a cleansing. In the story of Jesus, we have Jesus being baptized in water. It's a new beginning. And if we actually look at the word for river in Hebrew, it's nahar, which means river or stream. What's curious is the word for light or daylight in Hebrew is nahara. So it's very similar. So there's a slight nuance there, and we need to note that. Now we move into this section that is kind of curious. What we have is we have this major river that comes from the ground, and then it happens to split off into four different areas. You can go in multiple different directions here. But what I want to focus on is the wording of what is happening in these next few verses. Right off the bat, we see that the first river is Pishon. And when we look at the word Pishon, it means shaking the region or creating a great diffusion or to break apart and to scatter. So the first thing that the author is pointing out is this idea of shaking the region. It's not from order, but this is chaos. There's a great shaking going on. And then as we move down through verse 11, we get to this encircles the whole land of Havilah, which we discussed earlier. Let's go ahead and move on from there. The next point, it says, where there is gold. Now that is curious. That piques my interest. That is really odd. An author of the second story would put into the text a reference to gold. What does that have to do with creation? And then goes even further into verse 12, where it says, and the gold of that land is good. Now, that rings in my head what was happening in the first story, where after end of each day, God would say, and it was good. And at the end of the first creation story, God says it was very good. Now what we have here is the author of the second story saying that gold is good. Well, what is gold? Now, gold is a natural material and it's part of the periodic table, but gold comes from the earth. And I find it curious that the author here is saying that gold is good. And then the author goes on even further and says there's also Barry Lilium and the Onyx Stone. 
Well, now I'm really curious. What exactly is Barry Lilliam and Onyx Stone? Why would the author even put this into the passage? Let's look at that deeper. What is Barry Lilliam? To be quite honest with you, I had to look that one up. Barry Lilliam is actually a chemical compound. It's natural, has an atomic weight of four, and it's very rare in our universe. In fact, scientists believe that it comes from the cosmos. So they don't even believe that this is a natural occurrence on Earth, that it actually came from the sky or the cosmos down to Earth. Today, they use beryllium as a additive in the metals that end up on our spaceships. Because when you mix it with these other metals, it actually makes it even stronger so that it can go out into space. Which is very curious because what exactly did they use beryllium in ancient times for? Most likely, they probably used it as additives for weapons. But the curious part about beryllium is they believe it comes from the cosmos to Earth. So it's not even a natural occurrence here on Earth. And then the author talks about the onyx stone. The onyx stone in ancient times was mostly used in pottery and jewelry. But as we know, in modern times, it can also be mixed with quartz. So what does all this mean? And what was the author of Genesis trying to convey to us where we have this almost inserted section in here where it talks about gold, beryllium, and onyx stone? Honestly speaking, that probably could be an entire show. Hope that this has piqued some of you to research this and study that even more. Because if we go into atomic numbers and we go into uses of all this, I'm sure it can get into a lot of symbolism, which we're not really touching on here. As we move down through the passage and get to the other three rivers mentioned here in the second story, we have the second river, Gion. Now, Gion in the Hebrew means gusher or to burst forth. And it's often associated with rivers, but it can also be associated with human births, which is curious here because we find that Gion is related to Ethiopia, where it says in the next passage, the one which encircles the whole land of Ethiopia. Ethiopia means a fiery eye or a keen sense of vision or appearing as fire. So we have to link these two, Gion and Ethiopia. Ethiopia meaning a keen eye or a fiery eye or even appearing as fire. And Gion, which means to burst forth or a human birth or a river. And now we get to the third river, which is Tigris, or some translations would say Deklat. And Tigris in its root form means arrow or pointed. And as we learned earlier, spear was associated with the elders of the tribe. So Tigris is often associated with a formal authority or a synthetic authority. So government. It says that it flows east of Assyria. Now, Assyria comes from the root Ashur, which, by the way, is the second son of Shem. But 
in this particular case, a sure means a level plane or a step or going straight or being level. So that's what is going on here with the reference to Assyria. So we have the Tigris, which is a formal authority or government, and it's associated with Assyria, which is level or to be in balance or to keep straight. And so as we move on to the last river, it is the Euphrates. And it's curious to know here that this is the only river that's not associated with a landmass or a city or a region. So we just have to look at what is the meaning behind Euphrates. And if we dive into the uh, root of Euphrates, it really means good parat or good and fruitful one. Or it can also mean to be fruitful and split and multiply. That in itself will get me to think about what is happening in the first story. So now to tie the two together. In the first story, what does God say to man? He blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. And here we have in the second story, the root of Euphrates really means to be fruitful and multiply. It is tying the two stories together. Now, as we continue progressing through the story, this is where Yahweh Elohim, Lord God, put Adam into the garden. And I want us to focus on the fact that something happens here in verse 18 that doesn't happen anywhere in either of the stories. In verse 18, it says, Then the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, said, It is not good that man should be alone. We do have to take note of this because obviously in our first story, God says it is good and even it is very good by the end. And he uses good time after time after time after time. He never uses not good. There are only two references in the second story to good. We saw it earlier where it says the gold is good. And now here we see that it's not good for man to be alone. So now we get into this whole creation of woman. In the first story, man was created male and female at the same time. In the second story, we have Adam being created and Adam being placed into the garden and managing the garden. And it wasn't until Adam named all the animals, went through and Yahweh Elohim says, none of these are good for you. We need a helper for you, Adam. And this is now where we introduce woman into this story. And as we discussed earlier, in this particular case, this is Isha, which means woman or wife. So the author does not use Negabah, which is female, which we saw in the first story. He chooses to utilize a different word here. Well, that's important to note because what really happens here is that the root of Isha is tied to Adam. What we have going on in this passage is that the author in the second story is making a note of tying woman to man. Yahweh Elohim takes a rib from the side of Adam to create woman, Isha. But as we move down through this passage, 
it gets to verse 23 where it says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This is a stark contrast between what was happening in the first story, whereas it says he created a male and female, separate, whole. What this implies is that woman, Isha, comes from man. So in essence, a byproduct of man. Obviously, that brings up a lot of theology, whether or not man and woman are equal and so forth and so on. And that's been argued for thousands of years. And I really don't want to get into it here. I'm just pointing out differences in the passages. And that leads us to the end of the story where it doesn't seem like it fits into the rest of what's going on in the creation story. What do I mean by that? Honestly, what we do in verse 24 really is glossed over in the church because it's associated with weddings. As it says, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. My curiosity comes from the fact of why is this inserted into the creation story? And when I say that, It's because I'm focusing on the line that says, leave his father and mother. My understanding is that Adam and woman, Isha, are the first man and woman. So why would the author of Genesis insert a passage where he talks about mother and father? To me, that doesn't make much sense. Now, remember, when we looked at the first story, of male and female, that implies that they're two separate beings. In the second story, what we have here is we have Adam and woman being created from the rib of Adam. And so we have two separate beings, but they come from one source. So they should become one again, the two of them together. And as we end the second story, It says, and they both were naked, Adam and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Well, that's a curious way to end a creation story. Considering when we have in the first story, God blessed the seventh day, sanctified it. Because of this, he rested. So the first story ends with God and God saw that it was good. And then God rested. Our second story ends with Adam and his wife becoming one and being not ashamed that they are naked. So what's going on here is a different ending, almost a theological ending to creation here in the second story to try to tie together the creation story in Genesis 1 with the creation story here in Genesis 2. So there is a major difference here. What this means to the overall passage of creation, I'm not sure. At the very least, I hope that you can see that there are layers to the text. And as we begin to peel one layer off at a time, you can see that there are nuggets of truth that are buried within the narrative. things God works for the good of those who love him Romans 8:28 When I was a teenager my mother died of cancer 
I was angry. My world was shattered. Cried out to God, why God? Why her? She was just in her 40s. Young son at home. She was in ministry, adored by many people. What good can come from this death? Years later, I sat across the table from a man who happened to be a professor of hers at the time. And he went on and on about how my mother had inspired him during her dying days. He was so moved by what she exhibited that he wrote a book. And that book is read by thousands of ministry students who then are ministering to thousands of people in their ministries. So what good can come of death? Well, in this situation, good came from the experience that my mother had with this man during her dying days. He passed that on to others who are in ministry who can then influence and minister to people in times of trouble. That is the power of good in the hands of a God who believes in miracles and reconciliation. So in your prayers today, pray, Lord, no matter the situation, I know it will be good because you assure us that even in the most difficult situations, good will come from this. Sheep among wolves. In the church, you'll see a lot of discussion that circles around this idea of an age or a day. And so you have a lot of very smart people arguing on either side, whether or not this idea of a day is a literal day or whether or not it's a period of time. What you often see is this argument between what they call creationist and scientist. So the church tends to focus on the different arguments that arise out of this science versus creation argument. Now, if we move into the academic world, as noted earlier, we talked about literary interpretation of these two passages by trying to tie them together through the actual words or the literature that is happening beneath the surface. That's what you would call an exegetical. Literary technique is one form of an exegetical study. Academia also looks at the text in many other different ways and techniques. One of the popular and most prevalent interpretation or discussion comes from the Wellhausen theory, or in short, the JEPD theory. If anybody has been in an entry-level biblical studies class, you'll know right away what I'm talking about. J is the Yahweh, and then E, Elohim, P, priest, and D, Deuteronomy. So what you have here is that scholars are looking at the passage through the literary lens and seeing that there are distinct differences in the language going on within the passage. And what we see going on in chapters one and two is we clearly have a Elohim and a Yahweh Elohim emphasis going on in these two chapters. In the first story, we have an Elohim the second story, we have a Yahweh. Some have argued that even at the end of chapter two, where it talks about man and woman, that this could be an insertion of a priestly interpretation to try to reconcile what's going on between the first story and the second story. 
So there's a possibility that there are three different voices going on in these two passages. And you can spend months, if not years, really looking at the text and seeing if there are different voices here. Another academic interpretation, which actually has spilled out into culture and has become very popular, is this idea of a Gnostic view of Genesis 1 and 2. This has been popularized by scholars such as Elaine Pagels, Willis Barstone, and Tobias Churton. So what exactly is Gnostic or Gnosticism? The Gnostics were a group that was associated with the early church and was around in the forming of what we would later call the Catholic Church or the Universal Church. They focused more on a mystical or theoretical interpretation of scripture. And as we found in the late 1940s, that there were also other books that the Gnostics would refer to and use as scripture. I bring this up because this is one of the passages that the Gnostics really focused on. They believe that Yahweh Elohim is different than the God of chapter one, Elohim, and that Yahweh Elohim is actually a rebellious God and that he is the creator God of this earth, which would then make him more evil or not good and different from the first God in chapter one or the true source God. Obviously, you can see that that would probably create a lot of controversy within the church. And the church later deemed the Gnostic groups as heretical. However, in today's modern times and with the discovery of the Nag Hammadi text, you will see that Gnosticism has gained in popularity as more and more people have access to these other books. I also want to make note and emphasize the fact that The creation story is not unique to Genesis 1 and 2. Every major culture and civilization has a creation story, whether it be the Sumerians or Babylonians with the Inu Elish, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Celts, the Incas, the Mayans, and the African tribes. Every major culture has a creation story. So your research and study can go as far and as deep as you want it to go. And so as we wrap up this session, my goal was to introduce or awaken you to this idea that more may be going on in these passages. I hope that has encouraged you to do your own research, to study in depth and maybe come up with stuff that I haven't even seen in these texts. We live in an age where we have access to information that even if you go back 50 years, the average person could not get. They had to rely on other people. My main focus and mission on creating the podcast Sheep Among Wolves is for the average person to not rely on others for how they come to an understanding of the text in the Bible, but to do their own research, the study. My goal is to give you tools, to give you questions, not answers, but questions. For you to dive deeper into the text, to start peeling back the layers upon layers upon layers that are hidden in the text itself. I hope your curiosity has been piqued. I leave you with these words. Happy hunting. (laughs) 